Well, praise the Lord, right? Amen. Thank you, team. Thank you for using your talents for God's glory. The mystery, two, from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, and this is part 11 in our series on the epistle to the Ephesians. So we pick up where we left off. Uh, We had the Easter break where we covered the Easter themes. That's been great. But now we immerse ourselves once again in this wonderful letter. The mystery. And there are different types of mysteries, if you would recall. For example, one of the most popular tourist attractions in in England are the, the giant stone pillars of Stonehenge, right? These massive pieces of granite are also a great, great source of mystery. Every year people travel to Stonehenge with questions such as, why were they erected? Why were they, why did they do it? Who accomplished this extraordinary engineering marvel? And perhaps most of all, People wonder how they did it. So visitors go there and they leave the place having received no answers from the silent stones. The mystery remains. At other times the mystery is solved. In 1798, when Napoleon Bonaparte was ruling Europe, it wasn't big enough, so he went down south, he went to Egypt, he went to occupy Egypt. And he was there for only three years. And uh, his other passion, apart from conquering the world, was archaeology. And one of his French comrades, who uh, loved archaeology as well, made an incredible discovery um, on a, it was part of a building, part of a construction. And it was, it came, this, this particular rock, came to be known as the Rosetta Stone. And from this, it was just a stone with all this writing on it, and nobody thought much of it. But the Rosetta, from the Rosetta Stone, they were able to understand the Egyptian hieroglyphics that is found all, all inside when you, when you visit Egypt and you go inside these tombs and catacombs and all of this, this it's everything. And people couldn't understand what all this, what they all meant. But the Rosetta Stone, the top half of it, is, is, is in ancient hieroglyphics, while the bottom is the equivalent translation in ancient Greek. So through the translation that was done in the, uh, during the period of the Ptolemies, it was done in ancient Greek during that time, They were able to compare the translation which then unlocked the key to interpret all the other hieroglyphics found throughout Egypt within the tombs. It unlocked the study of what is now known as Egyptology. The mystery is solved. In many ways... Our Lord Jesus Christ 
is the Rosetta Stone that unlocks the Old and the New Testaments, isn't he? Because you see, you take him out of that, you take him out of the Bible, you you, you remove Jesus, you remove his power, you remove who he was, his person, and, and what remains is just another book of history, just another book of religion, just another book on poetry, and just another book of law. That's all it is. As important as they are, you, you, you remove Jesus out of that, and that's all it is, because it's empty of its power. We just sung about the power of Jesus, Jesus' name. So last time we looked at, at Ephesians, we we spoke of another kind of mystery. This is the mystery for which the Apostle Paul was persecuted, he was arrested and eventually died for. In verse 6, remember these words, Through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one, one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So rather than having divisions and groups and all of that, Together, through Jesus, in Jesus. That hostile wall that divided the Gentiles and the Jews is now gone. Gentiles, along with Jews, are gloriously incorporated in the body of Christ and thus participating in this divine salvation. In other words, we're all kin, we're all Related as brothers and sisters in the greatest family of all, the eternal family of our Lord. And when we become part of this family, we are are part of this, this wonderful mystery called the church. We are adopted into the family of God. That's what the church is. And because of the shed blood of Jesus, all believers are fellow heirs with him. As fellow heirs, we're all entitled to the same inheritance. It's not like there's a reading of the will and they say, well, Jelena's getting the socks (laughs) and Jess is getting the car, you know. There's a, rate, there's a rating system, right, according to how they got along and how much she loved you or hated you. And, and to my dog, I leave the mansion, you know. <laughs> That's what Jelena will say. <laughs> but you see, as fellow heirs, we're all entitled to the same inheritance. That's why the church is such a wonderful mystery. Israel, as God's chosen people, they were selected, they were chosen out of the rest of the nations. There was nothing in them, but God chose them. But God never provided a way in the Old Testament for, for Gentiles and Jews to be united into the one, into the one body. That is because it all looked forward to, it looked or look towards the cross, towards Jesus, towards the redemption. It all look forward to, to that. And that is the church. That is what we are. God's family. 
That is the glory of the church. Now over the last past 2,000 years, Satan has sought in so many ways to destroy the church from without, from outside, by persecuting and killing its people. It has been happening for 2,000 years and is still going on today. But Satan also has another, even if you can believe it, even a more damaging, damaging strategy, and that is by using heresy, scandals, corruption to destroy it from within. So with all of this checkered past, why is the church still standing? Why is it still here? When so many organisations and clubs and societies have gone by the wayside, why are we still here? And we ask in this day and age, as with people asking, I suppose, in every generation, is, is, is the church still relevant anymore? And as, and as we, we know, we, we sense it, we know it in, in the West, that the, once again the world is growing hostile to the gospel, we need to take a step back and look back at our roots, our foundations. Why are we standing, on what should we be standing, and on what we will be standing when times get really tough. And we will find that the church is here only because of God and his grace towards his children. Because the church is the bride of Christ. That's why it's precious in his eyes. So in our passage today, Paul continues to talk about the mystery of the church as revealed to him by God. And as, as he's writing this letter, he's dictating to his offsider who's, who's writing all this stuff and, and his chain to a Roman soldier and they take shifts. And one, can't only, one, one, one can only wonder what these Roman soldiers would have thought, you know, that uh, Paul is dictating these words and these soldiers are listening. What did they think when Paul claimed to be a prisoner, not of the Jews, not of the Romans, not of Caesar, but a prisoner of Jesus? What's wrong with you? Wonder if we could also have the same perspective through the things and the circumstances that we face. To view our adverse and challenging, challenging situations such as such as the ones that many of our fellowship are going through, as opportunities, look at them as opportunities for which we give thanks instead of consider them as burdens that we have to endure. Look at them as opportunities for which the light of Christ can shine. It's a different, it's a different perspective. So let's look first of all at the servant. Verses 7 to 9. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me 
to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Now in the early part of this chapter, we spoke of Paul the prisoner, Paul the administrator, Paul the teacher, and he uses another description here of himself, which is diakonos, from which we get the word for deacon, but it's rightly translated as servant or, or minister. God, by his almighty power, gave him the privilege of being a servant of the gospel. In his past life, never in his wildest dreams would he be able to do that. Would he be able to do what he did now without God's working? And the word for working is energia, from which we get our word for energy. That's the word for working. The working of his power, and the word for power is the word dunamis, from which we get our word for dynamite. So, the energy of his dynamites, the energy of his power, the working of his power, and he gave him that privilege just like he gives his children, those who are part of his church, he gives him us that power to serve him, not just the pastor, but all of us. I'm not just the, the you know, a lot of people say, what, what, is, what job do you do, right? And says, well, I'm a minister of religion. So, huh? A pastor. Oh, okay, pastor. You're one of those. But if I said, I'm a servant, I say, oh, okay, who do you work for? Oh, Jesus, actually. Oh, another weirdo. For Paul, this was a privilege. We're all servants, we're all ministers, we're all... There is, we have deacons in our church, but in a way we're all servants, we're all diakonos, we're all serving our master. If you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, God has empowered you, giving you his energy, giving you his dynamite to work in your life. And it is by God's grace. He has given you these gifts, which is a privilege, but also this, this responsibility to shine His light in this really dark world. And you're saying, well, I can't do this. Well, that's right, you can't. I can't do this. If it wasn't for His strength within you, you can't be His witness. You will not be able to stand up when they start saying all these things and accusing you and threatening you, how will you stand up? And that's why in verse 7 it says, through the working of his power. 
The same power that spoke the universe into existence will give you the grace to be a minister to him. I was out in the bush this week and I managed to just practice on my new toy, a camera. And I took a photo. After many attempts, I took this perfect pick of the Milky Way. You're sort of saying, my dad did that. All I'm doing is just, you know, taking a picture of it. And you're sort of wondering, you're lost. You're lost in the wonder of his mighty power. But it is that same source, that same power that he's working in us. It's not a separate one. It's the same from the same fountain. So what have we to fear? What? And there are many people, including many who call themselves Christians, unfortunately, who, who don't really like the Apostle Paul. Many who don't like this Paul, but there's many more who don't like the Apostle Paul. They see him as a misogynist, conceited, a bully. But nothing could be further from the truth. To the Corinthians he wrote, I am the least of the apostles, he said. So there's the apostles, and he says, I'm the least of them. That The group of 11, then the 12, and he's number 13. I'm the least of those. And to Timothy he wrote, I am the chief of sinners. And, and, and to the Ephesians, he actually invents another word by putting a comparative and a superlative together when he says, I am the least, I am less than the least of the saints. So I'm less than the least of the saints. Does that look like conceited to you? So that estimation that he gives himself is less than, quite a bit less than the apostles, right? I'm the least of the apostles. And he goes lower and lower again. Now this, you sort of, oh, he just falls humility. There's a lot of that around as well. But this was real. This was real. And, and, and this is even more dramatic when you put it in the context of the times in which we live because at that time and place, pride was what you needed. You needed to be proud in everything, who you are and what you had, who you belong to. So most people saw humility as, as, as weakness, a weakling. And pride was strength. Pride is what you need. Julius Caesar once said, if I fail, it is only because I have too much pride and ambition. <laughs> if I fail, it is only because I have too much pride and ambition. Isn't that the story of every megalomaniac out there? I don't know. You can throw Putin in there as well. In a world full of pride, humility is a powerful witness. 
because it runs against the current of the rest of the world. The rest of the world is pushing this, right? And then suddenly there's this puny little Christian swimming against the current. And how God can take a frail, broken vessel like you and me and use us for his glory is a mystery. Let's face it. Why? And how God can take a a bunch of failures full of frail, broken vessels like us and and make us his own as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That is, it has to be amazing, right? Which is our next point. The wisdom, verses 10 to 11. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it is part of his eternal plan to show that the manifold wisdom to the world through the church. But only, not only in the, in the scene, the physical, material world, the stuff that we see, taste, and all of that with all around us. By God's grace, the church will show his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is the unseen world. Oh, there goes Paul again, a bit loopy. There's nothing out there. This is all there is. No, 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 there's a lot more out there. The audience to God's divine wisdom is a whole lot larger than we might think. And God has chosen us, puny little us, chosen the church to demonstrate his character through weakness to all of creation, both the seen and the unseen. We are witnesses to the rest of creation, both the inanimate and that which is living, to the galaxies, to the Milky Way, to the the, the rest of God's creation through us to show his wisdom. And you say, that doesn't make sense. But he has. Think about it. And things are always because of this, because we have so much opposition from every realm, from without, from within, that we, we're actually involved in this battle of cosmic proportions. Forget Star Wars. That is, that's nothing. Okay? Nothing. This conflict is much bigger. It's been going on for a lot longer than that. And we are on the stand, we are on the battle, later on in, in, you will see what the stuff that we need, the gear that we need for this battle, but we are on the stand as witnesses for none other than the army of God. That's what it's about. Now the text here speaks not just of God's wisdom, but God's manifold wisdom. The, the word translated manifold in the Old Testament translation, they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek and it is called the Septuagint, 
And they use that word manifold in the original language to describe the... Remember the Joseph, these technicolour dream coat? Right? That, that, that is the word that is used there, the, the manifold. So it was used to describe everything from intricate and colourful, from the design of flowers to embroidered cloth to carpets to even the, the crowns. The, the jewels in the crown were used to describe manifolds. It can be translated as richly diversified, multifaceted, infinite diversity. Just like all of creation. God's saving wisdom is gloriously intricate in its design, its effect. This is very, very much the opposite of something that is boring, routine. This is incredibly simple and yet incredibly complex at the same time. That's God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. And when you think of all the resources at God's disposal, we spoke during Easter, we spoke about all the angels at his disposal, these millions of angels at his power, at his call. He could have chosen them to do the hard work and they still, they still do it. Yet he intends to accomplish this through the church. No, not nature, not angels, not the animal kingdom, through the church. And it is through us, this, this, this multifaceted, this multicoloured community, that uh, we are co-heirs with Christ, we are multiracial, transcultural. We come from many different generations and different countries and he's called us together. This is his wisdom. We didn't make this stuff up. No other organisation on earth, neither governments, nor armies, nor educational institutions, nor civic clubs can accomplish this ultimate purpose. Only the church. Think about how this is realised in our midst. I mean, this multifaceted, multifaceted wisdom of God brought us together. We are members of one body. We need to be thankful to God for his church. And this is why they will keep coming after us. But we cannot compromise. Someone wrote this about the church, and I quote, Growing up on the Atlantic coast, I spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. Whole cities would appear beneath my hands. One year, for several days in a row, I was accosted by bullies who smashed my creations. Finally, I tried an experiment. I placed cinder blocks, rocks and chunks of concrete in the base of my castles. Then I built the sand kingdoms on top of the rocks. So when the local tufts appeared and I, and I disappeared, their bare feet suddenly met their match. 
Many people, many people today see the church in grave peril from a variety of dangers, secularism, politics, heresies or plain old sin. But they forget that the church is built on what? On a rock over which the gates of hell itself shall not prevail. Shall not prevail. And then the confidence, verses 12 to 13. The confidence. In him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The word translated for freedom or boldness was used in the classical Greek for freedom of speech. It has, obviously, in Australia and the West, it has been in the news for a while now in the context of online media platforms and in Parliament as they try to work through religious laws and discrimination and all the rest. So traditionally, freedom of speech is known as the Democratic right to express your opinion as long as the statement was true and not intending to denigrate or incite violence or harm. Hence it was known as openness or or frankness of speech. And it came to be applied in the New Testament both to to the open and frank proclamation of the gospel. And to our attitude, at the same time, the confidence in our attitude of approaching God in prayer because of the gospel. Now all this power and wisdom from God doesn't really mean much, doesn't mean a lot unless we have the heart to follow through. We need to have not only a bold heart, but also humble Is it possible to be both humble and bold? Of course. Jesus was. Paul was. John was. And after Pentecost, Peter was. It is possible because the kind of boldness that Paul is talking about doesn't come from ourselves. It is not about being brash or boastful. Boldness doesn't say, look at me, look at what I've done. It says, what does it say? Let's look what Christ has done. That's what it says. And, and, and boldness is to be shown anywhere, everywhere, no matter what the circumstances. Folks, there, there are... There are people all over the world being arrested, killed, tortured every single day simply because they are proclaiming the name of Jesus. Faithful witness, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. But we not only have to have a bold heart, but we also need a confident one as well. Once again, uh, confidence and, and humility seem to be contradictory, don't they? Oh, he's a bit cocky, isn't he? Yeah, strutting his stuff. But they're not. It's all about who your confidence is in. 
Is it in your own ability or is it in the God who has given you the ability and the gifts and the talent? Paul says that we have access to God with confidence through Christ, through faith in Christ. And the church is given this really powerful tool called prayer. It is by prayer, through Jesus, in his name, that we can come. We have access to the very throne of God. Direct access. We can access with full confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Christ. Finally, Paul's arrest. Remember Paul was in prison. And his arrest and imprisonment and the hardships that he suffered, it's been going on for a while now. There was no resolution. He was in Rome awaiting trial and he was just in the waiting room type of thing, you know, a bit like in, hanging around in a remand centre, waiting for your trial to come through. And it began on for some time. Meanwhile, the churches that he established were all getting a bit disheartened, you know, sort of saying, if, if they're going after our leader... Guess what's going to happen to us? And and the fact that he was locked up seemed like a terrible setback to the hospital. And and the churches, particularly the church in Ephesus, they were getting disheartened, they were getting discouraged. They were getting discouraged because of his plight. I can tell you that discouragement, we all go through it in so many different levels and it is tough man discouragement is yes it is a feeling but you sort of look back and you're saying is, there's nothing positive around like oh, I can't see it it breaks you it breaks you and you're sort of saying I've got to get up there I've got to teach these other folks who might be encouraged or discouraged, but I need to give them the gospel. I need to teach them God's word. I'm not going to teach them myself, but I'm going to teach them God's word. This is where the encouragement comes from. And and the Apostle Paul is saying, is writing this letter to a people who were disheartened, that were discouraged. But Paul viewed his suffering in a different light. He turned it around in a different light. He actually saw it as contributing to their glory. How can somebody's suffering lead to somebody else's glory? Well, in, in the physical realm, we see that, you know, Anzac Day is an opportunity for that, for example. Many of the soldiers that went and died in foreign lands, their suffering is for our well-being. They fought for their family back home for their kids and grandkids and the generations that came later. Earthly glory. When we as parents go to work and suffer and, you know, work a couple of jobs, pay off the bills and all of this and try and give our kids a good, the best springboard for life, we are going through the suffering for their glory, their earthly glory. 
suffering for glory for somebody else that we love. When we go through what we go through, the difficult times, and give of ourselves, even in suffering, even through discouragement, the battle of discouragement, and we share the gospel with somebody, even though they might laugh at us, do whatever they do, we suffer the consequences, we suffer the, the discouragement, the, whatever they say about us, for their glory. We actually, we want them to be in heaven with us for all of eternity. I know they might not understand it now, but in God's grace, in God's wisdom, in God's power, we want God to put the fire, to, you know, to get it going. This flickering flame, perhaps, and just to blow it up, blow up their faith in a good way, like dynamite, so that his power can be displayed. To the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote, it's a similar thing, right, to the Corinthians, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.6, if we are distressed, that's Paul and his team, right, it is for your comfort and salvation. So his distress for their comfort. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. So that his suffering provides the platform on which God's grace can be more loudly and visibly proclaimed. It serves as a notice to the world that there is something, indeed someone who is greater and more worthy than any world or physical comfort that we so much desire in this world, right? Paul said to Timothy, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do it. Think of yourself, Paul. No. Stop doing that a long time ago, the Apostle Paul would say. What is the world saying today? Exactly that. Think of yourself. Come on, man. You worry about everybody else. Paul's saying, that's what I've got to do. So, in conclusion, maybe the, the church is no longer this, this freshly revealed mystery like it was to the Ephesians all those years ago and many other Christians at the time. To them, this was new, it was exciting, it was life-changing, it was a miracle of God. But we have new challenges to face. No, it's not climate change. It's not COVID, it's not even Putin. The moral redefinition and confusion in our world around us, that is a challenge. Are we going to do it on our own? Are we going to do it through our politicians? They're just going to change according to where the wind is blowing, according to where the electorate guides them. But we are part of something, something greater. Doesn't look like much. But we are part of the church. 
Are we bold in our witness? I hope so. Are we confident in our prayer? And like the early church and millions of the faithful believers since, may God give us the courage to stand in his grace and in his power. Amen.